ESPN LA 710. Hey, Travis Rogers here. When you're not listening to me on the Lakers pre and post game shows, tune in to The Experience with Laferne Cusack, where she goes beyond the play and focuses on athletes, fans, and the biggest events that inspire and shape our community. Listen to The Experience with Laferne Cusack, Sundays, 5 to 6 a.m. ESPN LA 710. Welcome to The Experience here on ESPN LA 710. Thank you so much for joining me here today. Today, we're talking ruling sports with founder of ruling sports, Alicia Jessup. She's also a professor of sports law at Pepperdine University and a writer for The Washington Post. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me here. It's great to be in studio. Yes, because the first time I interviewed you was years and years ago when you just did you just start ruling sports then? I just started, so I owe you a huge thank you. You helped launch my career. You've always been so nice and such a great supporter, but I started Ruling Sports on July 1st, 2011, and I started writing about college basketball, and you were one of the first people to let me come on their show, and it was was a big show. Uh, The blog starts in July, and the next thing I know, I'm on your show on ESPN LA, so thank you so much. Yeah, oh, that's great to hear. Yeah, Yeah, you were wonderful. I was like, oh man, she is, (laughs) she has it going on. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. And uh, But you were based in Denver, correct? I've been all over. So I was in Orange County when I started the blog. I was practicing corporate law. If we go back to 2011, it was the midpoint of the economic recession. So I graduated law school at the beginning of that. And I had a dream of working in sports and entertainment, but those jobs went away because of the recession. So I was really lucky that I found a job. Um, But I knew that my calling was to be in the sport industry. So I started the blog mostly as a hobby. I didn't tell anybody I was doing it. I figured if I finally told my dad, he would probably throw me a hit or two on it and read it. But I had no (laughs) expectations for it. So it literally started up overnight. And I was pushed into this new career of media and now education. Alicia, I think that's wonderful because a lot of people want to be in sports and they know, well, I can't be a a pro player or whatever, but there are so many areas outside of being on the court or the field that people can, you know, gravitate into. And so you just went out there and did it. Yeah. I mean, the sport industry. So I teach at Pepperdine now. I teach in the sport administration program. And you and I are taping this in a studio near Staples Center um, at LA Live. And my students are, you know, kitty corner to where you and I are. They're working the Sweet 16. And that experience has really opened up their eyes to all of the different jobs that are needed in the sport industry. So it's things as possibly mundane as being the person who wipes the sweat up off of the court. But that's a really important job. If you it don't is. do that, there could be serious injuries. So there's so much in this industry. And what I always encourage people to do if they want to work in a really competitive industry like sport or entertainment or writing, oftentimes you have to create your own opportunity And nobody is going to come and bang down your door and say, hey, Alicia, I know you're really smart. I know you're a good writer. And I I, I just know that. So here I am with this opportunity on a golden platter. Oftentimes, you have to position yourself first and let the world know what your expertise is. Absolutely. And I I wholeheartedly agree with that. So uh, let's talk about your, your journey to Pepperdine. So you have this natural love for sports. You knew you wanted to be in the industry. Um, Take us to where this opportunity presented itself for you. Right. So I've loved sports since I was a kid. I kind of tinkered in a lot of different things. I was a college cheerleader, which is interesting, but definitely not good enough at anything to go pro. That's a college sport. That's really intense. I went to college at a D2 engineering school, so let's (laughs) let's not make it bigger (laughs) than it is. Uh, But we, we practiced every day and we traveled a lot and it kept me really busy. But sports has just been the lifeblood of me. I was different as a little girl. I my my girlfriends were hanging pictures of the hottest celebrity on their wall. <laughs> I, I had this poster of the Colorado Avalanche. I was a huge Avalanche fan and it was like all autographed. I had pucks and autographed footballs. I mean, I was still girly, but what I was into was sports. And so my crushes were, 
you know, the men on the Colorado Avalanche hockey team and not Jonathan Taylor Thomas, if anybody remembers. Do you remember him? Yes, I do. Yeah, I wonder, I wonder what he's doing now. Hey, if you're listening, JPT, yes. I still liked you. Um, so it, I was just different. And I think what attracted me to sports were the storylines. One of the first memories of my life, I grew up in Denver, but for some reason, I really liked the Lakers when I was a kid. So <laughs> probably because they were really good. And I just really liked Magic Johnson. And so for some reason, I was homesick in second grade the day that he made his announcement public that he had the HIV virus. And I remember like going to bed that night, my parents closing my door and me just being in bed crying like over some guy I'd never met. I don't even think I'd seen him play live, but it, it just touched me so deeply. And from that point on, there would be many more stories that just captured my imagination, captured my heart. So I think somewhere intuitively inside, I knew what I was called to do in this big world. I knew that sport was part of it. And I knew that storytelling was a part of it. Right, right. I, um, speaking of that, I, I, I remember I was lying on the couch and there was a marathon going on. I don't know exactly what marathon. And was this woman trying to get across the line and she totally like broke down and she fell flat on her face right and then the people that were in front of her stopped turned around picked her up and they got through the rest of the marathon together and crossed that line and I was bawling myself I was like oh my gosh but I think what you know we were talking about before is sports has something to it that you're able to talk about issues and and make a difference in the world, I think, in a way that you wouldn't be able to, to otherwise without having sports involved. A hundred percent. It's really one of the great connectors in the world. I mean, look, sport is also the great conduit of some of the greatest rivalries in the world. And sport is not a perfect industry, but it's one place in this world where if we go into Staples Center today, um, Staples Center holds tens of thousands of people. We are going to see people from all different walks of life there. They're going to be of different races, socioeconomic backgrounds, religions, career fields, political leanings. But it's one thing that everybody can rally around. And so I think especially now in the age that we're living in, sport is more important than ever. So I, I feel really grateful to be part of this industry. I think it's one industry that unlike few others really has the ability to drive social change. We're seeing that right now. So as you and I are speaking, there is a protest going on very close to where we are, the uh, March for Our Lives protest that's taking place across the country. It's led by high schoolers saying the time is now to end gun violence and we need to enact smart, sane, sensible laws to address this issue. But if we look at, along with the high schoolers, who's been walking alongside this movement before we got to today where we actually have a march, it's athletes. One of the most vocal athletes is Dwayne Wade, and he'll be there today. You know, I popped on Instagram before we went on air, and he has the T-shirt on, and it looks like he's ready to go. Right, right. And uh, I know a lot of people say, well, you know, play sports. Don't talk about social issues. Don't get into politics. Uh, but some of the greatest athletes had to take a stand on something in order for them to even play or Muhammad Ali or, you know, Jesse Owens or, you know, so it's as much as you say, take po the politics out of sports. I feel politics, sports it is politics. <laughs> Sports is a mirror of our society. Um, so I, I like that you referenced Jesse Owens in 2000. That would have been 2016. I got to go to the Olympic Stadium in Germany that Jesse Owens raced in. It, it was one of the most chilling and incredible moments of my life. So I was there on a tour with the Bundesliga. The Bundesliga is the German soccer league. And so we went, we watched some soccer matches, and then they drove our group of international journalists. So 40 journalists, literally from every corner of the world. I was the only woman on the trip, which really? is, yeah, which is, that's a story for another that's day. Awesome. Um, so it was like me and, awesome. me and 39 men from around the world. And we, <laughs> we, we go to the Olympic stadium and, 
it was so interesting hearing their questions because I was also the only American. I'm the only American and I'm the only woman. How great. And, yeah. Um, <laughs> but you walk in there and you see the Nazi insignia. You see the swastikas. You see that the stadium was built out of marble in a period of time when the entire world not the entire world, but a big portion of the world was in a depression. Germany and Europe was coming out of World War One, so they did not have money to build a huge stadium that still stands today out of marble. But Hitler was trying to make a sign that his way and his political leanings were so great that look at what we can do in the midst of an economic crisis. And so the first place that they took us on the tour was where Hitler stood during the Olympic Games. And he actually had built into the stadium um, – think think about in this day and age like a club-level suite at your favorite arena. So it's kind of cordoned off from the rest of the fans. But then add to that club-level suite – um, a step stool of sorts that would allow one person in your suite to stand up above the rest and watch the competition. <laughs> right. So that's what he had built into his suite. So that's where we went first. Then we go down onto the track and it literally was one of the most chilling experiences in my life. I've, I've experienced a lot in a very short life. I've seen a lot. I've been a lot of places. But I stood where Jesse Owens stood on that track where he would have started racing. And I looked up and he had to have seen Hitler staring down at him. And I just asked myself, I said, if I was in this man's position, knowing that there's a lot of people in this room that not just don't like me, they don't even think I'm a human. So it goes beyond hate. Would I have had the power to race? And I I, yes, I, yes, you would. I don't know. I, I really don't know. I also, I'm not very fast. I'm five foot four. So thank God for Jesse Owens. But I just, you know, I basketball is my favorite sport, and so I covered the All Star Game here in Los Angeles a couple of weeks ago. And props to LeBron James. These men should not shut up and dribble. No, nobody. It doesn't matter if. You work in sports or if you're a garment manufacturer or if you're like my dad, you're a factory worker. We have our voices for a reason. And the minute somebody tells you you should shut up and that your voice doesn't matter, you let that person win. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And that's one thing that I, I'm like learning, you know, as as a female, you know, growing up, you're like, sit down, you know, be nice. Don't, you know, and it's like. Putting yourself out there to speak can be really challenging. And then learning what your voice is, especially in a male-dominated uh, um, society and being in athletics, you know, it's like, well, how do you make your voice heard? How do you go beyond what the norm is? How do you get that courage to say, you know what? No more. This is me. I'm going to share who I am every day of my life. And if you don't like it, turn the channel. <laughs> right. Right. And I, I think we are turning the page on that conversation. I think the conversation began in the entertainment industry with the Me Too movement and the Time's Up demand. And a question that I've received often in the months um, following those is – are we going to see something similar in the sport industry? Are we going to see a Me Too movement in the sport industry? And I said, well, sport is like anything else in the world, just like entertainment is. So if it exists in entertainment, it exists in sport. And sure enough, what do we know? Major allegations have unraveled against the Dallas Mavericks. They're only the first of many teams who are going to have an issue like that similar to the NFL network. But what I tell people is if you really want to make a change on that front as relates to People of all backgrounds, woman, man, African-American, Caucasian, you have to start accepting people for who they are and stop trying to mold them into who you think they should be. And so I teach a sport leadership class at Pepperdine. It's mostly seniors. They come from all different backgrounds, all different backgrounds. You have children of millionaires. You have children whose parents cannot maintain a job. 
And we talked last week about unconscious bias. And I, I showed them a video from Facebook. Facebook actually has a really good training on unconscious bias that you can find online. Hmm, really? Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Um, but they said something that the reason why it made me think about this is you spoke about public speaking and how that can be hard for some people. They said, what if you were a member of a culture who for so long the norm has been societally that your culture doesn't breed leaders and your culture, they aren't very good speakers and they're not very eloquent. And so what if those are the biases that have been pounded into your head as a child? And so now it comes time for you to give a speech and something happens the night before where maybe your mom gets sick or you're dealing with a crisis, so you really don't have time to prepare for it. So you get up and bomb the speech, but it's not because you're not a good speaker. It's just because life happened. But now we're going to keep that stereotype rolling down the line and how often does that roll down the line in your life mm-hmm. before you start believing it? And it's just so damaging to not just our kids, but also our adults that we perpetrate those standards. Right, right. Absolutely. I know, like, um, uh, when I first started the show, you know, there were so many people saying, okay, it has to be this way, this way, this way. And then I tried to do it that way, and it just did not feel real to me. And then when I listened to myself, I'm like, oh my gosh, that sucks, and that's not even me. <laughs> and then when I stopped doing that and just started, you know, expressing how I felt not in this formulaic way of doing what radio was supposed to be, it became fun. And the people that are supposed to hear the message hear the message. And, you know, I mean, many of the listeners know I mess up names, I mess up all the time, but that's how it is and that's okay because next week it will be you know better or maybe worse I don't know but (laughs) it still will be fun for me well and I I think that's a testament to a couple of things I think what we can't lose sight of is you are on the ESPN. So you're on the worldwide leaders airwaves in the second biggest media market in this country outside of New York. And they're giving you this platform that's very unique and very different. And then I've known you for at least seven years and the show's still going. So it must mean that it's resonating with somebody that you're doing well. And I, I think that's a lesson for everybody listening who wants to work in sports or a competitive industry. You have to go to where the holes are in the market and you have to fill the hole with something unique. And if you stay true to yourself and if you now you have to be good at what you're doing, right? Like Laferne is very good at what she does. They're not just like <laughs> handing her this studio that we're in saying, have fun, whatever, like do what you need to do. Um, if you become really great at your craft, but if you stay true to who you are and if you just keep developing that, and if you don't quit, like you can't quit. Oftentimes it seems very easy to quit. But if you don't quit, the opportunities are going to keep coming. And I, I've encountered the same thing in my career. So I started out as a sports law writer. Then I moved into sport business. I had a great opportunity to write for Forbes. I will always be grateful for the three years I spent writing for Forbes. But they wanted me to be a certain person. And they only wanted me to write about money, 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 my money. And yeah, money, money is important. Like I like having money. I like being able to pay my <laughs> bills. But there's so many deeper storylines yeah. in this world. And I was being pushed into this box where that wasn't allowed to flourish. And so I, I think if you become good enough at your craft, at a certain point in your career, you can say, no, I'm not doing that anymore. And I have faith that things are going to work out where I will be given the right opportunity that allows me to showcase my passions and my talents the way that they're meant to be. Yeah. And when I first met you, that's what radiated most with me about you is that you are passionate about it. You, It's in the core of who you are. And I was like, this woman is amazing. Oh, it's, I was thinking about it this morning. Um, like, look, I'm a pretty straight-laced person. I teach at a Christian university. So I guess my like one big vice is Starbucks three to five times a week. <laughs> but I was getting ready this morning and the light bulb kind of went off that for me, my drug is sports. You know, we're, we're here on a Saturday morning. Um, so it's a non-work day for me. But this is fun. Like, this gets me <laughs> a lot more excited than going to the beach, going to Disneyland. Maybe not as excited as going shopping. I have a big <laughs> shopping problem. But 
I, I think everybody in this world has some sort of innate passion. And I think figuring out what that passion is is the first step to understanding your calling. I, I'm a firm believer that every person on this earth, every person from um, the orphans I work with in Haiti to the mothers in Mexico to the billionaire in New York, I think every person on this planet has a purpose for being here. I, I don't think there's accidents in this world. But I think your life could become an accident if you don't harness what it is that you were called to do and just go full speed ahead with it. So how do you harness that power within your students at Pepperdine? Yeah, so I I feel like the luckiest person in the world. I heard Bill Walton, the now ESPN commentator, speak about a month ago, and he began his speech in a way that I loved. He said, hi, I'm Bill from San Diego, and I'm the luckiest person in the world. And so the next time I see Bill, I might let him know that, Bill, you're pretty lucky, but I might be luckier (laughs) because I get to work in Malibu, California with young people who believe anything is possible for their future. And so it's my job to not let that belief stray from their lives, but to keep pouring into it and making sure that it actually comes true. And so... How I harness that at Pepperdine is doing what we talked about a few minutes ago with unconscious biases is I just listen. I let them tell me, here's what I'm envisioning. Um, And if I could do anything, this would be it. And then I help them build a path for how they make that possible. But oftentimes, young people don't know what they want to do or they're selling themselves short. And so that's where I have to come in and get to know the person and say, okay, well, what do you like to do? What do you like to do for fun? Um, Most people have to work about 40 years in this world. If you had to do one thing every single day of your life, you had to wake up at five o'clock in the morning and go do it for 40 years, what is it? Is it writing? Is it speaking? Is it building? Is it playing music? What is it? And then I've been in the industry long enough now that I know the different jobs that exist for different types of tasks or um, passions that exist for different mm-hmm. people. So mm-hmm. it's like a college professor slash glorified career counselor. <laughs> <laughs> well, but that's great because we were talking about how, you know, I produce the show from top to bottom or bottom to top. And, you know, Steve, Steve, um, is in the other room doing the board and he used to do it for this show. And you were like, well, so is Steve going to do the podcast after that? I was like, no, I'll do it. And you're like, oh, well, you do everything. I was like, yeah, at first it was scary, but then it was like, oh, I know how to build a show. I know how to t- take it from the first moment to the last and get it out on the air. And some people may be like, oh, I can't believe that they took everybody off my show and I'm just doing this by myself. But I saw it as an opportunity opportunity. to learn more about the industry and what you can do with it and try to explore new ways to get a story out. The sport industry is an industry that's led by servant leaders. If you want to work in the sport industry, you can't complain about having to take on extra tasks or doing things that, in all honesty, probably are not your job. And so if you want to break into this industry, you need to learn as much as possible. I'm hoping that I can invite myself back to watch you do this because I really <laughs> yes. want to learn. I mean, it's it's Absolutely. such a marketable skill. So I, I read every single day. I probably spend when, I mean, not all at once, but throughout the course of one day, I spend at least three hours a day reading. I can't not continue learning because for me, not continuing learning means my job and career are over. So I, I think it's incredible that, you know, you, you're a host, you're an actress, you're a public speaker, you're a public figure, but you're behind the scenes running these computers and bringing this show to life, which is incredible. Um, but I think it also is just something that you have to have to work in the sport industry. So yesterday, I got to hear the athletics director for Stanford, Bernard Muir, speak. Bernard is one of the most respected people in the NCAA, especially in Division I. Stanford routinely puts forth some of the best athletics programs. And Bernard was speaking to my students about all of the tasks that he takes on to this day as the leader of one of the top athletics departments in this country from, oh, I see trash on the floor at Staples Center during the Sweet 16. 
I have two options. Well, I have three options. Walk away, ignore it. Option two, find a custodian. Option three, bend over and pick it up. <laughs> and so to become a leader in this industry, you're always going to pick option three. Like Laferne could have very easily been like, oh, nobody's going to run my board. Okay, fine. I'm out. <laughs> And who knows what would have happened if she chose that. But if you want to be in this industry, so much of it is being what we call a servant leader, where you are just willing to do anything because you care so much about the industry. Mm-hmm. And that goes back to what I always say. You're, you have to be willing to do the work. Willing to do. And Prince had a song, Are You Willing to Do the Work? And I'm like, yeah, you you just go and do it. And and within that passion and with, with what you're doing, it will lead you to your next, you know, challenge, next opportunity, next opportunity, which, you know, I think brought you to Pepperdine as well, teaching these young students how to incorporate sports in their life and make a difference. A hundred percent. So I've been listening to Purple Rain all week long. <laughs> Rest in peace, Prince. It's been raining a lot in Los Angeles. And that is a jam like it's eight minutes long it's like four minutes of singing and then it's just like a jam out session man what a loss yes um but what i tell so i don't really tell my students this because i don't think they'll get it but what i tell older people in the industry is one of the most controversial phrases in the sport industry for people wanting to break in is telling them that they're going to have to work there's so many people that i encounter I, i got a dm on my instagram from somebody that I've never met. Sorry if you're listening, but I'm going to call you out. I'm not going to say your name. <laughs> somebody I never met, don't know anything about this person, was like, I want to work with you. <laughs> That's great. I mean, I would want to work with me too. I'm pretty fun. <laughs> um, but what, well, what have you done? Like, nobody handed me anything in this industry. And I would assume it's the same for you. It's you, the people who get places in this industry are the people who work and they keep getting better at their craft and they're nice to people and they help other people when they have an ability to do that. The people that I see who are like, oh, I want to work in sports. I really, I just really love sports. I want to work in sports (laughs) that I've known them for like five years. And what do you know? They're still not working in sports are the people who haven't done work. So I always say that one of the most controversial things you could tell someone who wants to work in sports or a competitive field when they say, well, how did you do it, Alicia? Oh, you want to know how I did it? Um, I would wake up at four o'clock in the morning every morning before I went to my full time job as an attorney. My friends wouldn't see me for periods of time. Um, After work, I would go to the gym for an hour and a half and then I would go to Starbucks and I would blog (laughs) and then I would do that every single day until an opportunity came. So that's what you have to do. Yes, absolutely. Uh, This is ESPN LA. I'm Laferne Cusack speaking with Alicia Jessup, professor of sports law at Pepperdine University, writer for the Washington Post and founder of Ruling Sports. But she's also been honored with Forbes top 50 sports biz accounts on on Twitter. Um, And you can follow her at Ruling Sports. So, okay, so two things ran through my mind. When we were talking about Prince, now I just forgot the second thing. So let's talk. Okay. So the opioid crisis. Mm. Okay. Oh, now I remember the other thing. Okay. So I'm throwing this out there. Okay. The, The opioid crisis. So many athletes that get hurt have become addicted to opioids because of the pain. And then they're sitting up in, um, uh, treatment centers because they, tore their leg leg muscle or something. And so many athletes go through that. And I don't think that a lot of people are talking about that because you have to turn yourself around being a pro player, you know, um, getting healthy, going and getting ice. It's you. It's this is who you are. Okay. Second thing is when you as an athlete or you as this person saying, I want to work with you. There are places that you can go that say, oh, okay, well, I could get this place because I know this person. That's great. They can get you in the door. But your work and talent will keep you there. And you will be exposed as a fraud if you're in there and you just don't know how to do anything. A hundred percent. So let's start with like the easier issue first. (laughs) 
<laughs> hard work. So you the, the sport industry, even though it's large, it's really small. And if you've been in it long enough, you're basically within like two degrees of separation from everybody else. Like if I really needed to today, I could leave here and probably get in touch with pick your commissioner um, because I've been in the industry for seven years. But there's a lot of people who – not a lot. There's some people who come into the industry because they know somebody and they either rise up the industry's ladders just the way that the rest of us do or they fall out. But just because they know somebody doesn't mean that they are giving um, – all they're given is an opportunity. That might be the only thing different from them versus somebody else. So I'll give you two examples. One of the women, I, not women, one of the people I admire the most in the sport industry is Charlotte Jones Anderson. Charlotte's father is Jerry Jones, the owner of the Cowboys. Uh, the Cowboys are the most valuable team in sports. So Charlotte, you know, probably doesn't need to work. Um, she attended college at Stanford. And when she was at Stanford, she had no desire to work in sports. She had no desire really to probably go back to Texas. Now, don't quote me on that. I'm just assuming that. But her father purchases an NFL team while Charlotte's in college. And he calls her and says, you're the only person I trust to run this thing. You need to come home. Wow. And she fought it for a long time. But finally, she relented. She said, "Okay, fine. I've had the great opportunity to spend two game days with Charlotte. One was the first ever college football playoff national championship. So that would have been in 2015. And then a Cowboys game in November of 2013. That is the hardest working woman I have ever encountered in my life. Now, this is someone whose father is a billionaire who could very easily just sit back and say, oh, I'll just hang out in my dad's suite. She was running around literally 100 miles per minute, stopping to speak to anybody who wanted to talk to her. Um, So I know that the Cowboys are great because of Charlotte. Charlotte is the vision behind the business of that team. Um, I'll give you a coaching example. One of the first friends I made in the sport industry is a man named Michael Moynihan. Michael reminds me every day how important I am to him as a friend, that he will walk out of um, a team meeting with Ben Howland. Us Angelinos know Ben Howland is kind of tough. He'll walk out of a meeting with Ben to take one of my calls. So Michael's been a great friend of mine. Michael wants to be a college basketball coach. Um, Michael's grandfather is going to be inducted into the Coaching Hall of Fame this year. Lefty Drissel coached at Maryland, Davidson, very renowned coach. Michael could have ridden on the coattails of his grandfather, and I'm sure knowing who his grandfather was got him into the door for his first position, which would be an unpaid general assistantship. Um, I think he was at the University of North Georgia. But he's had to work his way up. And I've known him for this entire process. And so I know that none of it was easy. So don't think that just because people have family members or Mm -hmm. friends there mean that it's a cakewalk. Yes. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. So the opioid crisis. Yes. Um, (laughs) Did you think that this would happen today? I'm tackling all the issues. I actually have a response. Um I spent four years at the University of Miami, and we're, we're definitely seeing the effects of drugs on our professional athletes. So, you know, we just got ta- done talking about my friend Michael. His grandfather um, coached Len Bias, and Len Bias gets drafted in the first round of the NBA draft, goes and does cocaine and dies. Oh, God. Um so that there's been drug issues in sport for as long as drugs and sport have coexisted. But the opioid crisis and also I think the expanding use of recreational marijuana um, across all leagues is something that we need to talk about in the open because I, I think it's great that you asked this question. A lot of it is going on behind closed doors. And yes, it, it, it is an issue when – a former NFL player has sustained so much injury and damage to his body that this is life after the game for him. But where I come at the issue is as a college professor. The 
players associations for our four major leagues in sports at this point have decent retirement plans. Now, they're, they're not perfect retirement plans, but there's some medical monitoring provided, there are pensions provided, and then there's ongoing health insurance. So it's not a perfect foolproof system, but there are avenues for those men to go down. Where I have a big problem is in the world of college sports. So I spent four years at the University of Miami. The University of Miami has produced the most NFL players. Sorry, SC. Sorry, (laughs) I love you all. Sorry, UCLA. Um, But I had the great opportunity to teach tens of these men. So currently, I have six former students who are in the NFL. I have former students in the NBA. I have former students in Major League Baseball. Um, but it be you know we talked a few minutes ago about being put into a box with what you can do, and it got really hard for me there at a certain point. Now the athletics department is great; they, they do their best within the purview of the rules to provide for the college athletes there. But I would have students come up to me after class and say, "Now I'm a I'm a law professor; I have no medical background, and these guys know that." They would come up to me after class, and they would say, "Professor Jessup." How do I know if I have a concussion? Oh what do God. you mean? How do you know if I have a concussion? Well, I don't know. I just got hit really hard, and I, I think I have a concussion. But they didn't pull me from the game, so I, I'm assuming I don't. But I, I just don't feel right. So how do I know? And I would say, look, so and so, I'm a lawyer, uh, but mm-hmm. my my guess is, if you think you have a concussion, you probably have a concussion. I had a student who had a molar. Okay, so like a back tooth a molar knocked out during a football game and went back in for the next play. Oh, and you mean to tell me that there was nothing wrong with his head to have a molar? I mean, like push, push on your molar, like for that thing to pop out and they're like, Oh, it was, it was loose. The molar, give me a break. Like pull the kid out for a play. So what scares me more about the opiate crisis isn't professional athletes. Now that's not to say it's not an issue. It is an issue. But we have more college athletes in this country than we do professional athletes. And because of the way that the NCAA bylaws operate, these young men are not being cared for. And it's also young women. Two of the sports that generate the most concussions are cheerleading. Someone mm-hmm. argue cheerleading is not a sport, but diving. Yes. I had a diver at Miami who's like, I've had seven concussions because I hit the water the wrong way. Oh, so I, I think it's great that you raise that question. It's an issue that needs to be dealt with. I have a friend who is in the NFL whose dad slipped and fell at work and became addicted to opioids and it broke up the entire family. So it's not just athletes. We're seeing this issue occur with our young people and their families. Absolutely. And it's so relevant and it's so like uh, uh, you can chuck a penny and you'll hit somebody who's addicted, Mm -hmm. you know, in, in this industry and it's, it's, it's insane. It's insane. It, it's just really sad. And I, I think yeah. a lot of it is just bringing the issue out of the darkness into the light. Um, because if you're using opioids, you're probably not being really out front about it. Like, hey, guys, like, look what I'm doing. And so you are dealing with your pain behind closed doors, in silence, in the dark, and nobody knows about it. And so nobody can help you. And I... I think it's just part of a conversation that we need to have as a society of, you know, we, we people always say, oh, my gosh, that guy makes so much money and mm-hmm. he's just a professional athlete. Well, if you haven't worked in sports, you don't see that the person gets up at six o'clock in the morning, runs through drills, gets on the exercise bike, and their body is essentially an instrument that is being taken through the ringer. Mm-hmm. When they come out of their professional careers, their toes don't look the same way. Um, they can barely bend over. They have huge neck cramps and pains. And so I, I think we need to start telling people what's really going on behind the doors when the locker room doors close. Well, what do you say to your students, Alicia, that how do you inspire them to or lead them in a way that they are take an active part in their health mm-hmm. and, and standing up for themselves? Yeah, it's it's hard. Um, there's so much pressure on these people. And Pepperdine doesn't have a football team. And I, I had 
real issues with football. I mean, th- those were my favorite students. It felt like a divorce when I left Miami because I f- it felt like I was leaving my babies behind. But like mom just couldn't do it anymore. She couldn't watch this anymore. So she had to go. Oh, my God. Um, and so with those young men, like I keep in touch with all of them. And I remember like I had a conversation with them and I was like, look, is it worth it? Is it worth it that you're going to put your body literally through the ringer, even with all the advancements in technology, all the advancement in research, you're putting your body through the ringer. Is it worth it? And most of them be like, yep, it is. And so I think the conversation begins at an even younger age, because for so many of these men, they've been taught football is the way out. And they've been taught that's the only way out they can get from or that's the only way they can get out of their situations. What I found fascinating that I also think is not reported is how many Division One football and men's basketball players, parents are either dead or in prison. And so the people who come into these young people's lives oftentimes are coaches. The coach is doing the best that they can, and they're just moving this person along to try to give them a future. Where are the teachers? You know, I yeah, I played sports growing up, but my parents iterated every single day, Alicia, the way that you get out of, you know, we we were a middle class family. The Mm -hmm. way that you make yourself is books and school. And so my my brain's fine. I've never (laughs) suffered a concussion. But I look at these young people that I'm teaching and the people who cared for them were saying football's your way out. Well, why can't the book be the way out for some of these people, too? So I think the conversation begins at a younger level, iterating that every person in this country can use education as a way out, and we do not need to sacrifice the bodies of boys from low socioeconomic communities to fuel our fun and fantasy on Saturdays and Sundays. Dang. (laughs) Yeah. I don't – I mean, you said so much. I'm like, (laughs) wow. I I have strong feelings about this. I mean, because now – the, like, I'm 33. I'm single. I don't have children. Hopefully that changes someday. But for, <laughs> if, you're, if you're out there and single and don't think I'm too angry. Um, but these are my kids for now. Yeah. And so when one of your kids comes to you and is like, got a molar knocked out, they put me in the next play and then they told me I was not tough. Excuse me? Wow. <laughs> yeah. We have a problem. Right. But that, that goes back to what I talked about on my show previously is what is a man like Mm -hmm. you don't cry. Come on. You can do it. You can uh, shake the pain off and go, go, go. And then shaking that pain off costs them their, you know, mobility in their legs or arms or. It's just insane. I in 2012, I went on a date. It was a one and done date. Date. (laughs) I generally this was my only date with a professional athlete, and I did not realize it was a date. So I would just like to get that out there. Uh, Yeah, I generally do not mix business and pleasure. Um, So we were on a date. He was an NFL player. He was a rookie. So he's like 22, 23 years old. At dinner, he ordered a cheeseburger and macaroni and cheese. We were at the yard house. I believe I ordered a salad. And so, like, he'd finished the burger. He's digging into the mac and cheese when he looks at me and he says, Alicia, so this guy's 23 tops. Alicia, I'm going to have Alzheimer's by the time I'm 50. Oh, God. And I'm like, okay, well, check, please. Like, what? Um, but for him to he, realize he that. knew it. Right. He said, I'm going to have Alzheimer's by the time I'm 50. So I like dig into my salad. I'm like, well, this just got really awkward. Like, give me a second here. And I look up and I'm like, is it worth it? And he goes, what do you mean? I'm like, is it worth it that, you know, 27 years from now, you're not going to be able to remember anything? And he goes, absolutely. And I go, why? And he says, I never had anything. I never knew my dad. My mom was a drug addict. This is a Caucasian player, okay? My mom was a drug addict. I never had anything. And so I am just going to live it up between now and then, and it's not going to matter. 
It's, it's the mentality of some of these people where they've been taught for so long that the only reason they have a purpose is they're this force of nature in a body and that that's the only way that they can find meaning in their life. That's the only way that they can find value in their life. And th- there's a huge problem. And so what we need to do is we need to find the disconnect. Yeah, it's one thing to motivate a young man to become the best at what he can become. It's a different thing to motivate that person to a place where he knows his life is going to be over in 25 years. I was motivated by a lot of mentors, but I don't worry about losing my health because of work. And so I I think that's the issue. Hmm. That's very sad. Yeah, it's really sad. Um. Now I know just moving moving on. <laughs> I mean I, I do I I'm not trying to trivialize it. It's no. just it's I think that we can have a a longer conversation about that. It's just I have to process what you just right. said. Yeah, I didn't even I'm still processing it. It's yeah. um you know it's it's just it's hard when you know the people. And so what I make a point to do is I tell all of my former students in the NFL least a couple of times a year, hey, I care for you a lot. Even if you aren't an NFL player, I will still be here. And there's a life for you if this isn't what you want to do. And I, I don't want this to sound like I'm bashing the NFL mm-hmm. or bashing football because football does not need – football can exist without these consequences. But I'm not sure we're there yet. And the reason why I don't think we're there yet is – is there's young people who know that this is a risk that they're encountering by playing the sport. So um, it, it's sad and it it changed my view of a lot of things. And we, we see it in other sports as mm-hmm. well. I mean, if we go to baseball, we see people who are uprooted from their homes, usually in the Caribbean, they are sold by an agent called a Busco, um, they're sold by an agent to a team. They go and work their entire productive athletic life for a baseball team, and then the boost goes strips them of all the money. And so, yeah, you don't have the head injuries that you have in the NFL, but there's other problems in all of our sport that need to seriously be looked at. And are you addressing that with your students at Pepperdine? Yes, yeah, so we. That, that's one thing I like about Pepperdine um, is because of the mission of the university and the way that we're situated. We can get into these hard issues in depth, and I think my role as a professor is to let students know what's going on and give them analytical and problem-solving tools. So if it's an issue they want to address they can go out into the world and address it. So we look at everything from, um, I do a lot of work in Haiti. Haiti's really close to my heart. So one of our um, focuses is how sport can be used as a tool for development. And that could be, oh, yes. yeah, yeah, it's really cool. I love that. Um, we talk about just different issues in sports. I mean, th- there's an issue of human trafficking in the NCAA. Yes. But nobody's talking about. And when you tell people like, oh, you see that basketball player? He got sold. Somebody brought him from somewhere and sold him to this program. Yep. And so it's just opening people's eyes to as great as this industry is, it does have problems. And so it's going to need educated people to solve those problems. And one problem that you... Uh, brought to light is the shoe industry. Uh, talk about that and how women are now making it into this industry. Yeah. So in terms of the problems we've discussed today, this is probably <laughs> like the most minimal oh of them. I so. Know. Uh, I'm so when, thankful. I'm when so I leave thankful. here, I have some definite story <laughs> angles to discuss. But I, I've always been really interested in fashion. And so whenever I get to do a fashion story, I'm going to take the bait. And really since 2013, I've been writing about how leagues have been using fashion as a way to attract female fans. So one of the first leagues to do this was the NFL, um, really in partnership with the woman I mentioned earlier, Charlotte Jones Anderson. 
they brought in a group of leaders from the league and teams and also the fashion industry to figure out what can we do to revolutionize the way women's sport apparel looks. So for a lot of us, um, historically, women's sport apparel meant dying a t-shirt pink maybe <laughs> i know Isn't that it's, and it's always like a color of pink that like <laughs> no a normal wants. woman does not no. want. like a normal sun the right word like a stylish woman is not wearing this color of pink so usually it means pink or maybe there's some glitter or bedazzling <laughs> Or my other option is I can shrink it. So I can borrow my husband's shirt. I can put it in hot water in the washing machine and dry the living daylights out of it. And now I have sport apparel. So this issue has kind of been on the radar of teams since 2013. But what's interesting is it's now moving to the apparel companies. So I did a story for the Washington Post. It came out last week about Jordan Brand. So the brand named after iconic basketball player Michael Jordan. Jordan Brand is 33 years old. Jordan Brand and I were born in the same year, 1984. Uh, One of us has achieved more success than the other, but hey, it's not over yet. Um, Jordan Brand, for the first time in its 33-year history, recently released a women's standalone collection. So what does this mean? This means that if you were a woman who is a sneakerhead, which there are, there are many female sneakerheads, up until months ago, if you were buying a pair of Jordans, you were buying them in a men's size and in a men's colorway. There was nothing for you, even though you make up 51% of the population and huge buying power for the shoe and sneaker industry. So I brought this into the light about why now, what the goal is. And I I think the biggest question is why now? And what I loved about the story is there's a woman named Ann Myers Drysdale. Uh, You know, she's a California woman. She lives here. But she's the only woman to ever be signed by an NBA team. So, like, this woman is a force of nature in the world of basketball. She is a vice president now for the Phoenix Suns and the Phoenix Mercury. So when I got this story assigned to me, I said, I need to speak to Anne. You know, Anne played at UCLA. Anne knows Coach Wooden. She's been around. And she kind of pulled the wool off my eyes. And she was, Alicia, why now? You know, this brand's been around for 33 years. They know that women like their product. They know that women are consumers of sport. Why now? And, you know, she kind of pushed the story into this thought process of with all that's going on with the Me Too movement, the Time's Up, with the greater social conscious to equal pay for women with the 2016 election, it was a perfect cataclysm of events. And if that perfect cataclysm of events hadn't happened, would we have this women's collection that we do today? And what was your answer? Uh, What was interesting is Jordan Brand kind of echoed similar sentiments. So I was able to speak to Tinker Hatfield. So if you are a sneakerhead, like that guy (laughs) is the man. Oh, my God, right. I do not get nervous around, you know, I I spent four years covering the heat. I was in a locker room with LeBron James for at least 41 games a year. It was no big deal. I would go up to LeBron and be like, what did you have for lunch today? How are your kids doing? (laughs) Like, like it was Uh nothing. But like Tinker, I was like this guy's the man and I know he doesn't do a lot of public appearances. And so I asked him the same question. So Tinker did not design the first Jordan. He designed uh, the Air Jordan 2 through 20 and he's been instrumental with Nike since. So I said, why now? And he said, I agree. Why now? And he said, it's (laughs) it's something that's been so important to me. I'm speaking as Tinker. Me, I have three daughters. I've wanted to do this for so long. But I think right now, with all that's going on in current events and history, people know, now this isn't verbatim, but the quotes in the story, people know that women are at least, if not more important than men. Yeah. And so I think it's just this social conscious, this social awakening that to go like full circle with what we've been talking about, for so long, people just didn't want to talk about it. And you could just ignore the female fan. You could ignore their preferences. You could ignore their buying power because the male fan was bringing enough in. But the times have changed. Yes, indeed. And with that, it's like I have a five-year-old son now. He loves sports. He loves, you know, gaming. He loves – and 
I was thinking about this the other day when my my husband didn't purchase something and my son was like, oh, can I get it? Can I get it? And we, we were t- talking to him about earning stuff and how he can earn a new Nintendo Switch game, right? Um, and I was like, wow, I'm holding the key to purchasing all this stuff for my son, you know? And it's like, how powerful is that? Like, I would do everything. I would go to the ends of the earth to, you know get something for my son that he wants. Mom, I want a soccer ball. Okay. Uh, and then I have to pull myself back. Okay, let's uh, talk about earning it. But I'm going to get it for him. <laughs> well, and it's interesting that you make that reference because companies have ignored the power of women when it comes to purchases yes. for so long because like Okay, so my family is a little different. My dad is the spender. My mom's more the saver. So, like, mom would be willing to take me to the store, but I wanted to wait for dad because I knew, like, we were going <laughs> all out. Mom was going to, like, rein in the credit card a little bit. Um, but most families are structured where it's the mother that's driving the van or the SUV to pick up the soccer shoes, the soccer cleats. It's the mom who's going to purchase the school uniforms. But why haven't we marketed to moms? Well, who is in the position of the marketing director? Who is the CMO of most of these companies? It's men. And oftentimes it's white men. That's not to say that's wrong, but they weren't listening to the wider demographics. Mm -hmm. And so Anne told me that um, in our interview, she said, Alicia, like this should have happened years ago because do you know how many shoes I've purchased for my children? How many shoes did her oh, late husband purchase? It was her goodness. driving all the consumer-based decisions. So it, it, it's great that it's happening. Um, you know, Tinker said it's too late. Anne said it's too late. Larry Miller, who is the head of Jordan Brand, I had the opportunity to ask him the question. His quote didn't make the story. Um, but he said, he, I asked him the question. And he goes, I knew that was going to be the first question. I was like, <laughs> well, I want to be doing my job if it's not the first question. He goes, okay. He goes, Alicia, we tried to do a collection for women in the past, but it didn't work because of our distribution model. And so he said that the issue was a matter of distribution. So you can look into that all you want. I didn't delve into it too much deeper, but he (laughs) said Jordan Brand tried to create a women's collection, I think he said in the 90s, and it didn't work because of distribution, but now distribution has changed, so we can have a women's collection. Interesting. I I don't know why you can't distribute it along with the men's shoes that were obviously so easy to get out in the 90s, but I guess that's a question for him. I mean, I remember my first pair of nike shoes that i that were guy shoes that i had to figure out well what size do i wear as for a female having a guy shoe right and it didn't feel right you know one was crazy so i interviewed a WNBA player angel robinson um angel plays for the phoenix mercury she's currently abroad playing that that's another story like why do WNBA players not make enough money in a professional league that they have to play year round in russia israel spain um I interviewed her, you know, and she she reached six feet tall pretty early in her life. And it was clear that she was going to become a basketball player. And like so many other women's basketball players, there weren't shoes for her feet. And so she had to go into the boys or the men's yes. section. And men and women are built differently. Even if you're tall, you're still built differently than a man. And so it's not going to fit perfectly. But also that... She wanted to be seen as being very feminine. Like to this date, she wears long hair. She has bows. Like she wants to be perceived as being feminine. And so there was some bullying that came along with her only being able to fit into men's sizing. Wow. And so you wrote this article for the Washington Post and you there there is a young lady who has these Jordan's out now. The collection came out the end of last year. So um, the designer is Elaylee May. She's actually from South Central Los Angeles. Her story is awesome. Um, 
you know, she grew up in South Central with a lot of family members around. Her uncle purchased her her first Jordans when she was a baby. <laughs> um, she she would admit that she was like a tomboy, but as she's grown up, she's become a lot more sleek and focused on higher, more couture fashion, blending Chanel with the Jordans. But she said, you know, as a kid, I was one of the boys. I was like running around playing basketball with them, but I had to wear boys' apparel, and so. You see someone like her, and that kind of shaped her identity now as a stylist. She's one of the quickest rising stylists in the world. She um, styles people like Little Yachty, um, other rappers and athletes. But you can see how a lack of access to more feminine features drove her to a more tomboyish style, which is interesting. Yeah, very interesting. And I love her style. Um, Where can we find this article and can people take... Take a look and see what it looks like. Probably the easiest way to find it would be to follow me on Twitter at Ruling Sports. But if you just Google Alicia Jessup, A-L-I-C-I-A, thanks mom for a name that could be spelled eight different ways. <laughs> um, Jessup has an O, not a U. So thanks dad for a last name that can be spelled multiple ways. It's good. Um, you'll be able to find it if you Google me. What, is, what do you think um, is the most fun about what you do? A lot of it is really fun. I think what is still fun to me is a couple of things, but I get to go behind the scenes and I get to, like I alluded to, walk up to LeBron James 41 times a year and ask LeBron whatever I want to. And so I take my job in the media really seriously because I know it's the only reason I'm able to have this level of access that I receive. But um, I, I use the access I have to show people what I would want to know or what I would want to see if I didn't have the access that I have. So I, I think that's really fun. Um, and just the energy, you know, being in an arena, you know, that's that's my drug of choice, being in an <laughs> arena. When I leave here, I'm going to go to Staples Center. Oh, I get to right. walk through the underbelly of Staples Center. I'll get there three or four hours before the game begins and just take it in. Yes. And it's, I don't know how this is work, but somehow it's paying my bills. So I feel very, very yeah, grateful. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and before you go, on your Twitter feed, you talk about Richard Sherman and his contract. Can you go over that real quick? Yeah. Okay. So look, Richard Sherman, obviously a really smart guy, went to Stanford. We all know that the man's smart. The, <laughs> in pro sports, what you have is what's called a standard contract. And so if we look at Richard Sherman's contract versus Tom Brady's contract, a lot of the language is going to be the same. And so there's this opinion rising amongst players that I don't need an agent to negotiate this contract because it's a standard form agreement. That's true in some instances. So for NFL players, because of the 2011 collective bargaining agreement and how they structured rookie contracts, A rookie probably doesn't need an agent because how the rookie's deal in the NFL is going to be structured is based largely on where that person goes in the draft. So that one is what we call a pretty boilerplate contract. Where Sherman got into trouble is he's a veteran. He's a veteran coming off of an injury. And so there are things that need to be negotiated, namely guarantees and bonuses. And so On the looks of things, it looks like he got the deal done. He got this money. He's going to be playing for a team. He doesn't have to wait for the injury to heal like the 49ers took him. Well, of course the 49ers took him because the way he negotiated the contract doesn't really force the 49ers to pay him if he doesn't basically come back and play how he was playing before the injury. It's a horrible contract, and it's really sad because, you know, I, I agree with him. Like, he's the one out there taking the hits. He shouldn't have to give – and NFL agents can only take 3% of a contract. He shouldn't have to give 3% to someone like me who's never been tackled in her life. But people like myself go to law school for three years to learn how not to get taken advantage yes. of in a negotiation. And he's the greatest corner in the league – I would not go and try to play corner, okay? So you turn to experts for a reason, and I I really hope it works out for him. Now, look, if he comes back and he plays as well as he did before, he's fine. He'll he'll be good. But 
if we look at the average career span mm-hmm. and length of an NFL player, that's going to be really unfeasible. And the 49ers know that. That's sad. It is sad. But I mean, okay, like, it's sad, but I don't feel that sad. One, this man's a millionaire. Two, <laughs> nobody forced this man to make this right. choice. That was his decision. Three, I mean, like, if you, like, I read the quote, I think I tweeted the quote of what he said, like, I've been doing this for so long. I know, like, I yeah, felt, been doing I felt, he, quote, I felt like I knew contracts well enough. Richard Sherman. I mean, that's like me saying, okay, so in 2014, I played in a fantasy league with a bunch of Indianapolis Colts players. Okay, so I was the one woman, and it was a bunch of Indianapolis Colts players. And I think they just had a spot, and they needed someone. So, like, we'll ask Alicia. We know she'll do it. I won the league. Oh my god! I won uh, the. They they were really sore losers. Like yeah. there was a trophy uh-huh. that was made, and they it was supposed to travel. They would not mail me the trophy, but my name is on the trophy. You you know who you are. You should be really embarrassed that yeah. you have a trophy with a woman's name on it in your condo. Oh, um, my God. But that would be like me going to these players and being like, hey, so-and-so, I won the fantasy league. So I, I, I know about <laughs> quarterbacks. I know about offenses. Let me at it. No, like – Everybody knows something about contracts. We've all been party to one before. That doesn't mean you're an expert who can go against top experts and negotiate successfully. Yeah, because they're they're only looking out for themselves. Russell Akong. So I'm from Denver. The Broncos are my favorite. Yeah, Richard Sherman should have learned from Russell, who negotiated a veteran contract with the Broncos. Um, you know, the way it was reported, it's a multi-year deal worth tens of millions of dollars. Well, what do you know? None of it's guaranteed. So how long did the contract actually last for? One year. It's a one-year contract. Um, so it's unfortunate, but I guess this is a lesson to anyone who's listening. But stick to what you know. <laughs> but that's the thing. And that's what I love about you is that you're teaching these young people that are getting into the entertainment industry to have a sound foundation, mm-hmm. you know, be accountable for themselves, right. their actions, right. right, and get proper representation. Right. And I hope they listen to me. Now, look, like the, <laughs> the key to my job is making sure people listen to me. And, you know, the, the, what's interesting is I always use the people who listen to me as an example and like things usually work out for them. But um, I, I have a line that everyone in life gets at least one thing looks, um, athleticism or talent, or uh, smarts. So looks, athleticism or talent, and smarts. There's three things. Everybody in this world has at least one of them. If you're lucky, you have two. If you're blessed, you have three. But it's very rare that you have a culmination of all three things. So I always tell students, look, this is your gift. Your gift is to play football. Be a great football player. My gift is to negotiate. Let me use my gift to help you. We can both help each other and build something great. But I think it's just unfair to expect people to be an expert at everything. Mm -hmm. Even though he's really smart, Richard Sherman probably hasn't had time to study the collective bargaining agreement and learn the intricacies of it. Yeah. I wouldn't want to do that. No. (laughs) I would hire you, Alicia. Awesome. (laughs) Thank you so much, Alicia Jessup, professor of sports sports law at Pepperdine University, writer of the Washington Post, and founder of Ruling Sports. And again, how can we find out more about what you do? So I'm on Twitter and Instagram. They are both ruling sports, like a legal ruling, and then sports with an S. And... A quick Google search could probably tell you more about me than you would want to know. So <laughs> right. however you want to get in touch, I'm out there. Whatever you do, don't Google me, please. Oh, no. oh. <laughs> I'm just joking. Thank you so much. This has been so much fun and you have to come back. And Absolutely. I'll teach you I all about learn. This. Yes. yes. But see, I would not think I'm an, I would not come into the board and be like, all right, like I've seen you do this once. I'm an expert. Let's go. <laughs> Well, yeah, well, we'll teach each other. How about that? Sounds good. Okay. I'm Laferne Cusack. Thank you so much for joining me. For more information, please log on to ESPNLA.com and go to the radio page and check out the experience with Laferne Cusack or check me out on Twitter. Thanks again. I'll see you next week here on ESPN LA. ESPN LA 710.